Welcome to this podcast on why people take up arms for illegal organisations. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the University's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University, and I'm joined today by Professor Adrian Gelke and Dr Zahir Kazmi. Adrian Gelke is Professor Emeritus here at Queen's University Belfast and is a leading scholarly expert on political violence in deeply divided societies, including his pioneering work on Northern Ireland and on South Africa. Attached to the Centre for the Study of Ethnic Conflict at Queen's, Professor Gelke's books include The New Age of Terrorism and the International Political System and Terrorism and Global Disorder, both works being published by I.B. Torres. Zahir Kazmi is a Senior Research Fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at Queen's University. He works on the global politics of radicalism and anarchism, and is also interested in the evolution and impact of counter-terrorism policies since 9-11. His academic publications include Polite Anarchy in International Relations Theory, published in 2012, and the co-edited volume Islam After Liberalism, published in 2017. Adrian Gelke, I'm going to start by asking you about people's motivations for becoming involved in non-state political violence. In your work, you've written that, quote, success, or at any rate, the prospect of success, is crucial to the legitimation of such violence. Could you comment for us, please, on your views about motivation, the prospects of success, and the reasons for people's engagement with non-state violence? Okay, I, I think, Richard, I'd better start by saying that Different disciplines have many different approaches to the issue of what motivates people. Um, I approach it, I must admit, from the position of somebody who studies comparative politics and international relations. I don't approach it from the position of a psychologist. Uh, People's motivations for engaging in uh, group violence or uh, internet-linked violence uh, can be be enormous. I mean, they just any number of reasons why people might be motivated to engage in such violence. However, for large numbers of people to be attracted to the same cause and to engage in violence for the same cause, there has to be something more substantial involved. And what, what, has, what there has to be, as far as those people are concerned, is some kind of legitimate cause. They have to be engaging in violence for something. And it has to be something that they see as important and valuable. Otherwise, they're not going to risk their lives in engaging in such violence. And generally, the kind of level of violence we're talking about does involve risk to life of both the perpetrator and their victims. Thank you very much. And Zahir Kazmi, relatedly, the word radicalization has become a term of high significance in recent decades in relation to the kind of turn to political violence that Adrian was referring to there. Is the term radicalization one that you think to be analytically useful? And what should we understand by the term in order to comprehend why people do turn to violence? Okay, so the first point I'd make is that radicalization is not the same as radicalism, that the terms are, of course, related and used often interchangeably. But being radical which can involve violence, but also the pursuit of peaceful uh, and positive transformation, or simply the freedom to dissent, 
I wouldn't say it's the same as being radicalized in its specialized academic sense as we understand it today, which is essentially about behaviors, processes, which can lead directly to terrorism or political violence. So while the study of radicalization today builds on earlier studies, of course, of post-war violence in Europe and elsewhere, it's principally today a subfield of terrorism and political violence studies, which has grown dramatically since 9-11. And because its framing has been largely driven by Western counterterrorism agenda since 9-11, there's been a close kind of symbiotic relationship between its academic study and Western security concerns. So you'll find that themes like violent extremism, de-radicalization, loom large in the study of radicalization today. And as a concept, of course, since 9-11, it's also evolved and been developed mainly to address radical Islam, understood as a form of terrorism, especially so-called jihadist movements such as Al-Qaeda and latterly ISIS. Though more recently, of course, it's also come to be applied to far-right groups and ideologies. But as you say, how analytically useful is it? And the process of radicalization, I'd say, uh, or in other words, the ident- identifying the factors that lead people to turn to violence is notoriously complex and indeterminate in the literature. It's become commonplace to say that there are multiple pathways or push and pull factors, personal biographies, psychological factors, the dynamics of social networks, etc., social and economic factors and ideologies. But much of the debate, I would say, since 9-11 in particular, about why people turn to groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS has, has also centered on the role of ideology. But again, invoking ideology can also be a little confusing in debates because it can mean different things in debates about radicalization. Ideology understood within radicalization studies as a factor among many others in radicalizing individuals. Or ideology on a more kind of macro level understood as a way of characterizing the nature of a kind of ideological civilizational war the West is waging to protect its ideals. And ideology, of course, in these debates is often uh, conflated with theology, but of course they're not the same thing either. So the ideological appeal of these groups may be in ideas around nihilism, violence, even aesthetics, or secular categories such as freedom, humanity, even libertarianism. Uh, but to understand, I think to understand why people turn to these violent groups is also important to understand what groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS actually want. And I think here the study of radicalization, located as it is within this quite narrow discourse, can sometimes lack nuance because it lacks engagement with other disciplines, especially those with more contextual understandings of the geographies, politics, philosophies, theologies histories of these groups and their environments. So to state the obvious, you know, Al-Qaeda is not ISIS. Um, that's something talk about jihadist radicalization, global jihadism, in kind of seamless, monolithic terms, doesn't really capture, you know, people join violent groups for different reasons, because they represent different things. And one last thing I'd say is that radicalization can also arguably be seen as a kind of growing Eurocentric discourse when it's applied especially to radical Islam. Not only because it's driven by largely by Western counterterrorism concerns in the Western Academy, but because 
it sees the global phenomenon of radical Islam through Western categories as well. So radicalization, in a sense, is just the latest iteration of a mode of inquiry into what the Western academy has called radical Islam. So this discourse, this subfield of radicalization studies today, today it identifies radical Islam with, with terrorism. If we look into the brief genealogy of the term radical Islam in academic study, there's variation, but it always, there's a strategy of kind of intellectual projection. So drawing on the radical European left, radical Islam has also been identified with the resistance narratives, including by critical theorists, drawing on fundamentalism, this term we used to use for radical Islam, concept originally applied to Western Christianity. Uh, it's, radical Islam is often identified then with religious revivalism, especially from around the 70s and the 80s. So radicalization in this sense is only the latest version, arguably, of this kind of projection into analytical inquiry. I mean, jihadism itself is a new term, is neologism. It doesn't have any grounding in Islamic traditions. Um, so I think the analytical utility of radicalization is also challenged by the issue of language and concepts and how we produce knowledge about it. Thank you. And you, you mentioned 9-11 in what you were saying there and its effects on analytical approaches and the categorization and constructions of behavior. And also for many people, 9-11 represented Zahir a fault line in world history more broadly. Uh, in terms of the evolution of counterterrorism, which you referred to, and the effects of counterterrorism on politics and society, in your scholarly views are here, was 9-11 a watershed or were the continuities as important as the things which changed? Yes, I think, Richard, I think the fact that 9-11 came only a decade or so after the passing of what many people also termed a world historical moment at the end of the Cold War, probably tells us as much about our continuous, continued need to make sense of that moment than mark a new one. So I think its significance in that sense, in this broad sense, has been a little overplayed. But 9-11 and the period following it has come, I think, to define a distinct era in counterterrorism and its far-reaching effects on politics. So in the wake of 9-11, there was a widespread kind of scrambling to understand what appeared to be a new form of terrorism, a new security challenge. And its novelty was seen to centre not only on the scale of the act, uh, but the global and the purportedly religious dimensions of the threat. And of course, we're talking here about Al-Qaeda and related groups, essentially. But I think even in understanding these new actors, there was a lot of continuity. You know, Al-Qaeda didn't spring from nowhere. So in a material sense, Al-Qaeda had its origins, you know, in Cold War legacies of Western intervention, namely the Afghan war itself. It was an offshoot of militant groups which had existed for decades, involved in more localized agendas. And it already begun to operate in the 1990s. You had attacks in New York, in East Africa, etc. So that was not new. And in terms of its strategies, in terms of its tactics, its operations, you know, mass casualty bombings, suicide bombings, these were not new, nor was there anything necessarily or distinctly religious about them. Similarly, its use of modern technologies, weapons, the media. And I mean, you could argue if it's touched by modernity in a material sense in this way, these new movements, it's not that difficult to accept that they've been influenced also by ideas of modernity. 
And in terms of ideas as well, I'll just finish on that. It's religious justifications for violence. You know, religious justifications for violence are not new, nor particularly to Islam. It's anti-Westernism has been a staple of anti-colonial movements for decades, if not longer. Even uh, calls for the revival of caliphate are not new. And I think part of the problem of dealing with post-9-11 violence of this kind has been, to some extent, a misdiagnosis of the nature of the threat, related partly to its apparent novelty or this kind of pre-modern return, this idea. But I think, having said all that, there has been some kind of watershed and in two areas in particular, first in the kind of global dimension of the threat and the response to it, and secondly, in the expansion of counterterrorism policy and interventions, downward expansion to all areas of society within states. So the first global theme is reflected in many ways. I mean, the obvious one is that the global presence of groups like Al-Qaeda and their reach and their ideology and their ambition uh, seems of a different order in global terms. But also the way in which counterterrorism has been coordinated to deal with this specific issue in a, in globe, on a global level in ways not really seen before. So the OSCE, the UN, have a countering violent extremism agenda. You have de-radicalization programs around the world, from Saudi Arabia, Indonesia. Uh, so there's that aspect, which I think is to some extent different. I wouldn't say it's a watershed, but it's to some extent different. The second departure is in this kind of downward expansion of counterterrorism policies into ever wider sectors of society within states. And there's just two brief things to that I want to just bring up here. The first is the unprecedented scale and engagement with a particular community and faith, namely Islam and Muslims. And then relatedly, the growing centrality to counterterrorism policy of the idea of nonviolent dissent, nonviolent extremism. So the first point, engaging Muslim communities through counterterrorism policies has been really a defining aspect of the post-9-11 period. And a lot of it has centered on this idea of promoting liberal or moderate Islam against more radical, militant Islam. And this has shifted the focus, I think, onto Muslims and onto their collective stigmatization, but also their collective duties. And it's led to secular liberal states also entering into deep into theological debates and the theological space in a way they haven't. And it's led also to a focus on a so-called crisis of authority within Islam, the idea that there is a need now to authenticate what Islam is uh, through a kind of so-called Islamic reformation. So it's a kind of sweeping intervention by government and society, which I think has had also some divisive effects. It's epitomized in the UK government's prevent strategy, but these kinds of policies are global. And it functions, I think, essentially as a kind of large scale strategy for socially engineering moderation, but one which is kind of narrowly defined. So while authoritarian states have deployed these kind of agendas more openly as a tool for dealing with political dissent, I think liberal states too are finding that, you know, their role in facilitating freedom is not the same as engineering moderation. They're not the same things. And just to turn finally to this point about, my second point about expansion of counterterrorism agendas into society. Um, 
the rise and centrality of extremism in counterterrorism policy is, I think, a departure in some ways and has had far-reaching effects. And what I mean by this is that extremism has kind of been transformed from what was once quite a very casual term applied to radicalism or a pejorative ideological tool and label during the Cold War to now it's become a kind of quite a highly developed and discrete policy and legal concept, political and legal concept, with a global range. So it applies, you know, from primary schools all the way to the UN. It's something that affects all citizens, not only Muslims. And the key contention, apart from contentions around it being quite ill-defined, is of course that holding extreme views is not only subjective judgment, so, for example, in the UK, it's tied to opposing what's called British values, what Prime Minister Cameron has called a while ago, called for a while ago, uh, muscular liberalism. Holding extreme views doesn't, doesn't necessarily lead to, viol to violence. So you may be illiberal, but not violent. And the core contention here is whether one leads to the other. And I think it's encapsulated in this new idea, not a new idea, but this this concept of a conveyor belt analogy. And just to end here, it's often said, of course, that the use of language in the post-9-11 in counterterrorism is important. And uh, you, you'll remember a few years ago, President Obama decided to stop using the term radical Islam in order to dissociate violence from the religion of Muslims. But he also replaced it with violent extremism. And of course, since then, President Trump has deliberately reversed this kind of rhetoric. But it's an illustration of how the introduction of extremism into the discourse of counterterrorism, even when well-intentioned, I think, can harbour its own problems. Thank you, Zahir. And Adrian Gelke, you, you mentioned earlier when you were speaking the ways in which different disciplines approach this issue of turning to violence and explanations for it. And in your own work, you've studied political violence very much comparatively, including major work on some of the most significant and long-running conflicts. I mentioned Israel, Palestine, Northern Ireland, South Africa. C could you say something, Adrian, about why, in your scholarly view, a comparative approach is important here rather than the approach of someone who focuses on one case study and lives with that during their academic career? Well, I think one major justification for the comparative approach is to be to be able to see the wood for the trees, so, to put it very simply. I mean, it, it enables you to cut through the individual characteristics of, of particular cases and kind of see some of the essential uh, similarities between campaigns of violence. Of course, there are also huge differences, but we can get uh, uh, misled by, by, by differences because uh, violence is quite similar everywhere in that violence is generally a means to an end. I mean, people don't engage in violence just for the hell of it. They have a purpose. And if they have a purpose, that means that they have some theory of change. They have some notion that violence is going to bring about the change. Now, very often, despite whatever cosmologies they may have, very often they discover quite early on that violence doesn't work. So I think this leads to an exaggerated fear, actually, of violence. People assume that if a new group starts off violence, it's going to go on and on and on. And actually, if violence doesn't work, it doesn't go on and on and on. 
I, I mean, this is partly the story of, uh, to be honest, of, of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, the assumption that they would necessarily go on for generations. Um, in fact, sometimes people are influenced by comparative ideas when they most deny it. I mean, the British government after 9-11 was it was very common for ministers to say, well, uh, this this Al-Qaeda violence will go on for 30 years. Now, why on earth did they think of 30 years? Fairly obviously because the Northern Ireland conflict lasted 30 years. So they had some comparison in their head when they made assumptions about other violent groups. Uh, so I think, you know, actually looking more carefully at, at comparison and looking at differences as well as similarities while doing so is very helpful to our understanding actually of individual cases as well. And in your comparative work, Adrian, looking at different cases of political violence in divided societies, you've exhibited a scepticism about the term terrorism. You've written that the term terrorism is so condemnatory and pejorative that in the words of one of your books, you said it cannot possibly be treated as if terrorism were a neutral technical term for a particular category of violence. And yet, Adrian, like many of us who have doubts about the word, you've also continued to use it in your work. Could you comment on the complexities of writing about non-state political violence, but within a literature which uses the T word and, and, and which is it, it which remains a difficult word to escape, even though you're sceptical about it. Well, I think you have to use it in order to discuss its its meaning, in order to get to grips with these aspects of it. To get to, I mean, the, the term is exploited politically in all kinds of ways, and one should be aware of it. The other thing that's very important is that the term, the meaning of the term terrorism has changed from era to era. Uh, David Rappaport has written usefully about different ways of terrorism that partly gets gets to that. But I mean, if you, one just thinks about terrorism of the the, the early 70s, the, the catchphrase for terrorism of the early 70s was few dead, but millions watching. And that encapsulated what that era of people engaged in what I'd call absolutely illegitimate violence were doing. And I think actually, if you think about what the essence of the word terrorism means is that it conveys the idea that this is absolutely uh, illegitimate. I think that's the, uh, the condemnation is a, is a common thrust of the words terrorism and terrorist. Uh, you know, Doris Lessing's book, The Good Terrorist, makes a good title precisely because you know she's contrasting two words that can't go together. Uh, and of, obviously, but terrorism also gets used in all kinds of, if you like, trivial ways for condemnation. I mean, we, uh, I've just, I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, just looking at the way that terrorism is used in ordinary discourse, we have, you know, you know the the famous Tiger King series, uh, the documentary. We we now have Joe Exotic calling Carol Baskin a terrorist. We have the Chinese authorities calling the Hong Kong demonstrators terrorists. We have Trump wanting to designate Antifa a terrorist organization. So there are all these different kinds of uses of, of terrorism. As there was a review in the London, in the no, it was in the New York Review of Books, which was looking at uh, domestic violence and saying that domestic violence is far too <coughs> nice a word for men uh, killing women. So really, we should designate men in domestic situations killing women, that should be described as terrorism. 
Although there's a bit of a problem about that, it seems to me, because they're not obviously part of an organization. I suppose you could say they, there is now this group called, what is it called? Uh, uh, in, 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 in cells. In cells. In yeah. cells, yeah. Involuntary celibates or whatever it's meant to be. And you could say that, you know, they encourage each other to engage in violence against women. And insofar as there's that encouragement, you could sort of make a loose analogy, I suppose. But the word terrorism gets used all over the place and it's politically exploited. It has to be said largely successfully by the right. I mean, it's, it's, it has been a very good mobilizing tool for right-wing politicians to play on people's fear of terrorism, which is vastly overblown. I mean, we can see that now with the, the other crises that have come about with climate change and with the, this terrible pandemic that there are a lot worse things out there than, than terrorism. And we're now beginning to appreciate that, I think. So maybe that will down the kind of volume attached to the word terrorism a little bit. Thank you. And related to what Adrian's just said there, Zahir, one criticism that's often made of states and their responses to illegal political violence is that sometimes using the word terrorism, states will use laws and justifications that might be seen as violent actor relevant, but when trying to restrict or oppose non-violent dissent, and that there's a bleed over into the reaction to civil resistance uh, of things that are introduced initially in the wake of the horror that people feel when a violent act has occurred. We're presently witnessing, as we speak, large-scale protests in the US, some of it violent, most of it I think not. Um, Zahir, could you comment on the relationship between violent and non-violent protest and responses to them and the relations between those responses, please? Yes, I, I think debates around violent and non-violent dissent since 9-11, they've often been framed around issues of legality and policy and the kind of management of dissent by states you know, through balancing the kind of classic twin demands, liberty, security. And this is important, but I think this focus can also sometimes obscure deeper processes. And one of them is a growing sense of anxiety, perhaps even crisis around liberalism more generally. And it's interesting you mentioned <clears throat> the current protests in America because, of course, they're happening in the heart of the West on issues relating to the West's own values and its own history, not on contesting some kind of foreign threat to Western values. And I think they reflect a growing and wider sense of, you know, perhaps crisis is too strong a word around the freedom to dissent in liberal societies and to claim rights as liberal citizens, but also around other groups and interests who want to challenge the liberal state more in more fundamental ways. And you know, these anxieties aren't peripheral even now to concerns of international security. If you look at this year's, the main theme of this year's Munich Security Conference, the largest gathering of its kind in the world, it was the idea of westlessness that the West purpose, its values, especially its liberal values, are under threat, not only externally from hostile state actors or aggressive forms of religion, but internally. And I think all of this seems quite a far cry from the kind of triumphalism of the post-Cold War moment, of liberalism as the end of history. But we seem kind of equally distant from the opposing idea of clash of civilizations but not in the sense of the usual critiques of it, not in the sense that, well, we all have the same values. But because Huntington, of course, had very little interest in analysing the cracks and fissures within 
civilizations rather than between them. So I think given these, what I would call liberal anxieties that are growing, it's no accident then, bringing the debate back to terrorism, that the rise of the far right allied to the alt-right in liberal democracies kind of both challenges and reframes liberalism. And it's no accident, it's, it's a growing concern now in terms of counterterrorism and radicalization. And this underlying problem then of reasserting liberal values without losing them in the process has, I think, a bearing on the question you posed about violent and nonviolent dissent. And I'll just illustrate briefly here with two examples. The first in debates around proscription, proscribing groups, and the second in debates around free speech. And both of these examples, I think, bring together some of the things I've been trying to get at around the fluid definitions of radicalism, extremism, the expansion of counterterrorism policies since 9-11, and the question of promoting liberalism as an antidote to violence. So to take prescription first, the debates around prescribing violent groups, as, as you and Adrian know, isn't new, of course, not least in the Northern Irish context. But in the post-9-11 policy environment, I think it's been related more specifically to these ideas of violent and nonviolent extremism and the development of this whole agenda as a discrete policy concept. But it also reflects an underlying shift, legal and political, from groups which are armed and violent, to include those which are now broadly what are, you know, what you might call subversive of the state and its values. And, you know, the revival of this Cold War term, subversion, is significant, because again, it, it echoes a kind of anxiety that the West and its values are under threat in some way. So, for example, since 9-11, in terms of policy responses, there have been attempts, as you know, to proscribe certain Islamist groups, Hizbut Tahrir, uh, which rejects liberal democracy. There were moves under the new Labour government to do that. The Muslim Brotherhood more recently. Complex movement, global movement, which includes political parties which participate in democratic elections, but which has also given rise to violent offshoots. So here you see that you know, on the issue of prescription, the lines between violent and nonviolent dissent have been heavily contested and legally challenged since 9 11. You know, turning to free speech debates, what's interesting, I think, in the current climate are the paradoxes in it. So, while free speech has been championed by kind of anti Muslim elements of the alt right and the far right in defense of a kind of liberty which they see as being distinctively a kind of Western civilizational value. Free speech has also been defended by Islamists as a way of exercising their freedom. And what you find is that it's often liberals who have criticized both groups for inciting violence through speech and who've wanted to curb this freedom. And I think this is puts liberals in a per, peculiarly authoritarian kind of bind and that one that's been manifested in various ways since 9-11 ways which I think arguably can sometimes fuel, however unintentionally, rather than break cycles of conflict, you know, whether it's in conflict, whether it's in imposing or seen to be imposing liberalism on others through the discourse of liberal Islam, which of course has also allowed violent actors like ISIS to proclaim themselves as being more free. Or it's reinforced through Western counterterrorism policies in the Muslim world, being allied to authoritarian regimes or traditional religious institutions, the kinds of actors who are concerned principally 
though in different ways, with disciplining dissent rather than fostering spaces for free thinking. Thank you, Zahir. Well, our conversation today has has ranged widely about violence, motivations for it, responses to it, about different disciplines, different methodologies, different terminologies and their implications. It's often noted, and I think rightly, that state responses to non-state violence change the world far more than the non-state violence itself. And I think from Zahir and Adrian today, we've been hearing about complex and subtle analyses of the political, the global, the societal, the legal effects of those responses, and the ways in which often unintended consequences can transform the experience of all of us. I do hope that people who've been listening to this will follow up through the website at Queen's, the work that Adrian and Zahir have done, and benefit from reading their work as well as they have from listening to it. But in closing off a fantastic discussion, could I just offer my profound thanks to Adrian Gelke and Zahir Kazmi. Thank you very much to both of you. Please rate and review and share this podcast. 